First Corinthians 15 is a section, oh, Corinthians is, is written by Paul to the church at Corinth and one of the churches he planted. And chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is sort of the, the paragon of, uh, of, of resurrection sections in the New Testament, uh, really in the Bible. It's, it's where Paul just lays out um, his magnum opus sort of case for, for the resurrection and what it is and what it means and what the resurrection of Christ tells us about the fact of our future resurrection in Christ and so, um, and the new creation that's coming and, um, it, there's a, there's a verse in there where he, he says, essentially, if there's no resurrection, then Christians are of all people to be pitied most. If we, and he literally says, if we hope in this life only, then we're, we should be pitied more than any other, any other type of people. So he's really wrapping up everything, all of his hope. Uh, in the fact that there is a resurrection and and that hope, the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead to life, hangs on for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the first of a of, of its type. He, he uses the phrase first fruits. It's like the first head of grain that promises that there's going to be a bumper crop to follow. Um, and so... He, you see, we're, we're not in First Corinthians 15 here. We're, we're, we're moving along here in Acts. We're almost done with the book. It's been over a year. It's been quite a journey. And we're in Acts 26, toward the end of Acts and toward the end of Paul's recorded, Paul's recorded journey in, in the book of Acts. He's almost, he's about to head off to Rome. And he here makes his appeal to Caesar and then is after this, in the next chapter, in fact, sent off by boat to Rome. Where he gets into shipwreck and eventually makes it there. Um, he he's a man on fire, and you really see here not only Paul's the 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 explanation for where Paul's energy and his zeal and his hope, even as he's chained, even as he's beaten, even as he's shipwrecked, even as he's run out of town, even as he's rejected by his own countrymen. Where does his zeal? Where does his energy and his power come from his hope it's his hope it's the hope of the resurrection from the dead and we're going to look at that here um it's not in this life so many of us even as christians i think we we look to grab the gusto in this life carpe diem seize the day because this day is passing and this is all you get is sort of what's implied in that latin that two-word latin phrase um but we if we're look, if we're living just for this life only, we're missing the whole point as Christians. Um, Paul sees that a new creation is coming, and it's already planted itself in the middle of this creation, and it's growing. And that's what the resurrection of Christ means. It means this old world's passing away, and the new one's coming, and it's not going to stop. And we're part of that. Um, but also, so you see his hope there in the resurrection from the dead, and the restoration of all things that will follow. You also see, I think. The resurrected Christ, not just to hope, but the resurrected Christ himself living in Paul and empowering Paul. Um, and and that is, I think, the answer as well. Not just a hope that Paul has, but Paul actually has that hope living inside of him. Um, and, and I think that you, so you see that here manifest as Paul really the, the, what's happening. The action here is that Paul's giving his. He's giving his own testimony. Here's how 
Christ saved me. Here's how he changed me. Here's how he grabbed me by the neck, as it were, grabbed me by the collar, threw me off my, knocked me off my horse, knocked me off my, my beast of burden on the road to Damascus when I was raging against Christians and going to throw them in jail, etc. And he changed me. I encountered the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, and, it, and nothing's been the same since. And so that's what he, he gives his own testimony to Agrippa here. Who's Agrippa? Um, let me quote from John Stott. Agrippa was the great grandson of, of Herod the Great. So let me break that down. John Stott, it was a dramatic moment when the holy and humble apostle of Jesus Christ, he means Paul here, he's talking about this passage, Acts 26, stood before this representative of the worldly, ambitious, morally corrupt family of the Herods, who for generation after generation had set themselves in opposition to truth and righteousness. Their founder, Herod the Great, wrote R.B. Rackham, had tried to destroy the infant Jesus. Okay, so that's who the great-grandfather of, of um, Agrippa was, Herod the Great. He's the one who tried to kill Jesus and had all the Hebrew boys to and under in Bethlehem and around there killed. So that's why Joseph took Jesus and Mary and fled to Egypt. Um, that was all me. Okay, so Stott goes on. His son, so Herod the Great's son, Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, beheaded John the Baptist. So that was Herod the Great's son. And one... From the Lord, the title of Fox. His grandson, Agrippa I, slew James, the son of Zebedee, with the sword. So John's brother. Now we see Paul brought before Agrippa's son. And that's this Agrippa. So this, this guy comes from quite a crooked lineage, um, evil men. But Paul, far from shying away or trying to, as we saw the, the advocate for the Jews bring case against Paul, in the chapter preceding, uh, he butters he butters up Festus, um, and that was a sort of a Roman oratorical tendency and tradition um, was to butter up the butter up the judge, as it were. Um, Paul doesn't flatter; he doesn't um, he doesn't necessarily try to get out of. Although he's very wise in the way that he deals with this, he appeals to Caesar. He stands on his rights. He doesn't try to get out of punishment. He he says things that he might know would anger knowing who Agrippa is, you know, this antichrist as it were would anger Agrippa, but instead he shares his own experience with Christ to Agrippa, his own testimony. And he shares Christ and the gospel, the way of salvation so clearly, so clearly we'll look at that with Agrippa. And then he pleads with him finally, as we should every time we share the gospel, he pleads with him. He says, now this is for you. This isn't just information. I'm begging with you to believe on Christ and to become as I am, except for these chains. So it's a funny little aside that Paul throws out there. Um, so the, the passage being, being that way really falls into three nice sections. Paul's furious opposition to Jesus in verses 1 through 11. Um, he talks about his life before Christ, before meeting the risen Christ. Secondly, Paul, Paul is arrested by Jesus. Um, he's in, that, in other words, he's confronted and commissioned by the risen Christ in verses 12 through 23. And then finally, thirdly, Paul, um, Paul as a prisoner of Christ, a doulos, a bond, a bond slave, um, appealing in chains for Christ, appealing uh, in the name of Christ for anyone in his hearing to come to Jesus and to be saved. Um, and to have that hope of the resurrection from the dead and to have the hope, the hope, Jesus Christ living in him. 
the hope of the resurrection and living living in them. So so um, again, it, it's a this is all a very helpful roadmap for sharing the gospel. Sort of this is who I was number one, starting with who I, my life pre Christ, my life BC um, before Christ. Two, so this is who I was number two. Jesus met me and changed me, and then laying out the gospel. Not only here's here's how he changed me. Here's who I was, but here's who I am now, and here's how you changed me. But but here is the good news of Jesus and breaking that down, articulating that. And Paul does that. And we should too. And then thirdly, I beg you, come come to Jesus, making it personal and be saved. Because Jesus died for people, for persons, for individuals. He didn't with faces and names. He didn't just die for a mass or just for us to throw out information, right? Um, although we are we all call, we are called to scatter the gospel seed and Jesus is the one of course who saves who does the saving but as often as we can make personal appeals we we ought to do it like Paul does here um it's kind of like when Jesus says to Pilate he, he really goes after even Pilate even as he's about to be crucified and and Pilate's the one who sends him there um but Jesus goes after Pilate and he personalizes Pilate's question what is truth and he said are you asking for yourself or for others. And, and um, he really is this, in a sense saying, do you, are you interested in knowing who I really am? Um, and that's the spirit of Christ in Paul. And it's the spirit of Christ in us as we do that with others, as we enjoin people to come to Christ. Um, so Paul here says in verse six, I stand here on trial because of my hope. And, you know, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, a commentator a few weeks ago as I was reading uh, in one of the earlier chapters of Acts just talks about, I think is as Paul standing before Festus, you know, he's, he calls this a brilliant defense because he's laying, he's saying, I've basically, I committed a non-crime. You know, I, I'm on trial here, not because of a bad thing I've done, but because I have this hope, this wonderful hope in the resurrection from the dead. Death is not the end. And the fact that a new creation is coming and in fact has broken into this world. And if that's why I'm being tried and it is, then fine, here I am. So it's a great, it's a great defense. Um, but it's it's the truth. And again, Paul could have said or not said a lot of things. He didn't have to. He could have said, look, I, I, it's a sham. I don't know why I'm here. I'm a Roman citizen. Get me out of here. He doesn't do that. He he takes every opportunity, whether in chains or not, to lay out the gospel. Um, and so once he says that I'm on trial for this reason, the hope that I have in the resurrection from the dead, all of a sudden his audience is wrapped and they want to know more. What What is this hope? How are you on trial for it? Tell us more. And he does. So we need to take every opportunity like Paul does to, and I'm guilty of, of not doing that. I'm guilty of having opportunities and passing them up because of cowardice or because of, I'm ashamed to say it, but because I just don't care about the person. And Lord, forgive me and forgive us and, and give us the spirit of Paul. Give us the spirit of Christ in Paul. Um. And he goes to pains to show in this chapter and also so in verses 22 and 23 of, of, of Acts 26 here, but also like in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, he goes to pains almost always, but to show when he's talking with Jews or people familiar with with uh, the Hebrew Bible, with the Old Testament, with Judaism, he goes to pains to show, look, this is nothing new. I, my hope is in the promised Messiah, the one that the scriptures point to. He has come. He met me on the road to Damascus. He's alive. He's reigning. He's coming again. He's 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 been resurrected and he has done the decisive thing in history. And now everything converges on him. Um, what hope is Paul referring to and why does this give hope? Um, because the, the key there is in 
verse 23. I'll just go ahead and drill into it right now. The key is in verse 23. Paul says, um, let me just read verse 22. He says, the Jews seize me. Uh, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the, here it is, right? Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And I'm not, I'm not speaking some new strange doctrine, right? I'm, 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 I'm speaking good, solid Jewish doctrine. The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus, right? And what is that? What's come to pass? Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer. So he's talking about the cross. He might, he must be the fall guy for our sins to, to reconcile us to God, right? Sins have to be paid for. If they're paid for by us, we're screwed. We were destroyed forever, bearing the wrath of God as we justly deserve. We can never be with him. Jesus took our place. He paid, those sins are paid for. God is just, they have to be. But in paying for them, instead of, instead of our paying for them, we aren't destroyed. And he endured them and then destroyed sin and death and their power. Amazing. So Paul, all that's wrapped up in what he's saying. The Christ, the, the Old Testament foretells that, right? That the Christ must suffer, the Messiah has to suffer, and that being, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And it's the answer to my question, why is the resurrection so hopeful, isn't wrapped up in that little phrase, being the first to rise from the dead. Paul understood and all the early Christians understood what we have to. I think a lot of times when we think of the resurrection, we think of a man, Jesus, rising from the dead, beating death. But that's not the significance of the resurrection. The significance of the resurrection is that Christ as our representative, the one who died in our place and bore our sin on his shoulders and in his person, rose from the dead. In other words, one, the resurrection means that his payment for you was satisfactory. God, the father, it was his way of saying paid in full. He is free now. Death can no longer hold him because, um, because he has paid what causes death sin in full and so he's released from death that's what the resurrection means it means that we're released from sin and death but it also means that it, it's not just a guy rising from the dead it's not just a guy victorious over sin and death it's it is um the representative rising from the dead and and uh, all who look to him it, his resurrection means that all who look to him are going the way that he has gone they're going through death into life, that it will be impervious to death and sin, where there won't be any more corruption. There won't be any more sadness or sin. And um, so Paul says he's the first to rise from the dead. And wrapped up in that is he's the first and we're following him. The resurrection, the minute you believe in Jesus Christ, his resurrection power and life enter you by his Holy Spirit. And, and that is a promise, the down payment of the full payment of the promise that we, when we die, we'll go to be with him. And then when he returns, we will receive new bodies um, like his, like just as he is, so we will be. And so Paul is saying, the resurrection from the dead has broken into this creation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and it starts inside of us that this new life and then works its way out 
from our lives into the areas that we inhabit. And, and it, it has this new creation begins in us and spreads out through us in our lives, into the culture and the people that we touch. Um, and then when he returns, it's going to be consummated. That resurrection life is going to be completed. And so everything outside of that will die. That's why for Paul, this is all consuming because everything outside of that hope, that faith in the, in the death of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ, if you are not wholly invested in that and looking to that for your hope, in that life, therefore, living inside of you by the spirit of the living God through the work of Jesus Christ, you will die forever. You will you'll receive a resurrected body and be undone forever, separated from God, bearing his wrath, John 3.36. The alternative is is to is to look to the one who bore the wrath of God in your place, who defeated death and sin, who paid the price, and who rose free from the grave, and has have that resurrection life deposited and living in you and growing forever to be reconciled to your Father through the work of Jesus. Those are the two alternatives: death or life, and they are found in Christ, this Messiah that the Old Testament promises and prophesies. And Paul saying, "Look, he's here. I've met him." I've gone back to search the scriptures that I had memorized but really didn't understand because Christ is the key that unlocks their meaning. And I've realized that they, that the one that they point to is here. He met with me. He's alive. He's alive in me. And I'm telling you, get on his side, come to him. This is, this is in a sense, this is it. I mean, this is the whole, I could finish the message now. I mean, this is the whole reason that Paul stands there shaking his chains, pleading, putting his arms out, taking every risk. Because he realizes it all comes down to this. It's death or life, outside of Christ or in Christ by faith. Those are the two options. It's binary. So everything Paul does in his life only makes sense based on that matrix, including his pleading with Agrippa here. Right? He hides nothing. Neither should we. So in short, you know, what he says is, look, if you just look at the, his words and look at what happens in Acts 9 where Paul, the actual account, that Luke gives of Paul um, con- being confronted by, arrested by the risen Jesus. He he was fully religious, y'all. I mean, we can be in rebellion against God irreligiously, but we can also be in rebellion against God religiously, following all the rules, thinking that we're on God's side. But God does not accept our own works as making putting us in right standing before him. That's the whole reason Jesus came. If he did accept our works, then Jesus would not have had to come. We could have done it ourselves. But we can't, you can't give yourself a new heart. It's broken. It's corrupt. It's depraved. It wants to be on the throne. And a lot of times religiousness, religiosity is simply a way of trying to be in control and trying to be on the throne. If I do this, if I do this, if I obey this, then God, you owe me. And it makes us angry and, and proud if we keep the rules. And it makes us despairing if we don't keep the rules. And and Paul here was furious. He calls it, he says, I was, by his own words, I was full of raging fury. That's the fruit that was produced in this man. He was locking, uh, he was full of raging fury. He was locking the saints in prison. He was approving of their executions and helping them to happen. He, he was trying to get them to blaspheme, which is a capital offense in Judaism, Leviticus 24, 16. 
And he was full of hatred toward them, literally running them out of town and out of the country, chasing them into exile, uh, essentially saying to them, you are not real Jews. And so you don't deserve to live in this land that God has given to the Jews, um, doing the worst possible thing to them other than murdering them, which he was also doing an accomplice to. Right. So. He was operating on the false assumption that they were blasphemers, that they were saying that God became a man and died on a cross. And Paul just believed that that wasn't possible, that God would never do that. But then when Jesus, when he met Christ, was confronted by the living Jesus and changed and Jesus came to live inside of him by his spirit, the scales fell from his eyes, literally, and also metaphorically on the inside spiritually and he began to read the same scriptures that he had memorized and to see a whole different message that confirmed yes indeed they have they have all along moses and the prophets have all along pointed us to a savior who would be the fall guy for us and who would rise who would begin a new creation we're either represented by the first or the second adam the first by birth the second through faith into a second birth. And so in, in, in all throughout this passage, you see Paul use, use the, the word, um, the symbols of light, light and darkness. Jesus came to deliver us in from darkness into light. And that's, those are the true, that's the true situation. I said earlier, our true situation is either we are outside of Christ and we will bear our own sin and the punishment, um, by a just God for it forever or we were in Christ and brought back into life and adopted by the father through his payment and through his life and death. And, you know, Paul's, he uses other binary um, things here to talk about the truth of our standing. And one of them is light and darkness. And he, you know, the fact is that if we are not, no matter how much we think we see, if we are not in Christ, our true situation is that we are in utter darkness. Paul was. Paul thought he saw very clearly, but he was blind. He was blind. He was in darkness. And, um, you know, if you've ever been in utter darkness, you realize it is totally debilitating. Not the darkness like there, the moon is full and the stars are out and I have a, a flashlight. No, no. Like no electricity, no light in the heavens, no ambient light, nothing in a cave. Utter darkness. You can't do anything. You don't even know which way is up. You're helpless and eventually you, you will die. If you don't get some light, light is life. And, and Paul is saying without Jesus, we are no matter how. No matter how um, much we think we see and how alive we think we are, we are in darkness. We are disoriented. We are dead. And that's another thing Paul uses. Is he uses death and life. Um, we are. We are either dead or we are alive in Christ. Even if we think we're alive, if we're not in Christ, we are dead. We're opposed to God. And he also uses the binary um, matrix of being in prison, being chained. We are, if we're in darkness and disoriented and blinded, we are also enthralled to our master, Satan. That's our true condition. Even if we think we're free in America, we're all about freedom and I'm free. And I just need to make my own choices and do what I want to do. We think that's freedom. It's not freedom. Paul makes it very clear that we are slaves of the one that we obey and if we're outside of christ we're obeying the enemy slaves to our own desires 
That's being a slave to Satan. He rules us through our fleshly desires. Um, but Jesus came not only to deliver us into from darkness into light by being plunged into the darkness himself on the cross, but also he came to deliver us by giving himself over to the enemy and to the dominions of hell. He delivered us from the thraldom, from the incarceration of Satan, of our sin, of our desires, which we cannot break ourselves free from, no matter how disciplined. He came to deliver us from uh, being slaves of Satan into the freedom of being sons of God. And he did that through his sacrifice. Um, and that's what he, that's what, that was what is on offer. And that is a picture of where Paul was before Christ came to him, met with him, confronted him, unblinded him, brought him into his glorious light, set him free. And you know, for Paul, it isn't just a light darkness thing. It's it always, all the New Testament writers, it always goes back to the scriptures. They call the Old Testament, our Old Testament, the scriptures. That's what, that's the written word of God that they had. And the New Testament is simply the answer key. It's sort of, oh, here's here's what the scriptures pointed to, Jesus. Um, and when he uses this light and darkness stuff, and he does this explicitly in his second letter to the Corinthians in 4.6, but he he's going back to, I mean, what was the first, he's going back to Genesis. What was the first thing that God created? Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Light out of darkness, light dividing day from night, light piercing darkness, allowing all creation to come forth. And what Paul is saying is that when scales fell from his eyes, when Christ met him, when Christ meets anyone and brings them to himself, when they, when you believe on Christ, what is happening is a new creation. And it's every bit as significant and it's more significant. This is because the old creation is being done away with. And um, so that's what Paul is saying here. Again, it's binary, right? You're either of the old creation or you're of the new creation. You're either in the darkness or you're, or you're in the light. You're either um, incarcerated and a slave to Satan or a child of God. And Paul, when he, he talks about his testimony quite a bit here, and he, and he says, look, when I was, I, I saw a light, but I didn't see Jesus himself. I heard his voice. And that's how he's constantly describing Christ, is what Jesus said to him. And Jesus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul um, with words. And that's no surprise, because John, what does John tell us? That Jesus is the word. That God is word. He spoke all things by his word. The word is God. And the Puritans used to say, we see God with the ear. He comes to us through his word, by his spirit. When we read the Bible, his word, we're not, it's not book time. It's time with the living God. By faith in Jesus Christ, with his spirit, Holy Spirit, filling us and taking us to him. Um, so. Paul, we don't have time. I want I want to finish finish this this lesson up. But um, there's this amazing thing where just Jesus. We talked about it some in our house churches, but Jesus says, "Why are you kicking against? It's hard for you, not why." He says, "It's hard for you to kick against the goads." A goad is sort of was a nail. It's a strange phrase. What does he mean? A goad was like a nail that was put on the end of a stick that a shepherd would use, sort of like a cattle prod. 
like an old timey cattle prod he would use to poke cattle to get them where they wanted to go. And if you pressed up against it, you're going to get, you're going to get stung, you're going to get pricked. Um, and, 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 and we see uh, there's a, so much packed into that phrase, but that Jesus was all the time that Paul was raging. Jesus was apparently goading him, pushing him in a certain direction and Paul was resisting that. So it really uncovers a lot there that Paul he was doing what he thought was right, but deep down, Jesus speaks right to our hearts. Only Jesus knows what our true motives are and what we're truly thinking. And the fact is that deep down, Paul was resisting something that he knew to be true in his raging. And Paul and Jesus says, stop it. Isn't that hard for you? How's that? As somebody in our house church said, modern translation, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you, Paul? You're full of fury. Look at the fruit of your religious life. And I just want to ask you, friend, what, how, how's that working out for you? How's the fruit of your straining and striving to clean yourself, to measure up, to build a resume? I don't know. Um, Jesus wants you to surrender to who he is and what he's done for you and to his love. Just as he called Paul, he's calling you. And just as, so just as Paul spent his life calling others to that same Christ into that same freedom, to that same light, so could you as well. And Paul really, I don't have time, sadly, to unpack this beautiful, the, the gospel in a beautiful way Paul does here in verses 17 and 18 and then 20 through 23, he does it again to, to Agrippa. So I might as well maybe just read the passage passages and then just make a couple of comments. But he says, Jesus, when he commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus, it says, delivering you, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So he, he sends Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to tell them, hey, this is what God has done for you through his son. He sent his own son to earth to save you, right? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. See, there's, there's, there's those binary that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So not only is for total forgiveness of sin on offer in Christ, that is part of the amazing good news. But another part is, and we often stop there, it's not just a cleansing, it's a becoming like Christ. We are, there's a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, you're included into the ultimate community. The very, the very Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, were brought into a family of those who are new creatures in Christ. You can take no credit for what, who they are and simply praise God for what he's done in Jesus and thank him. A community of humble people that are being made more like him. We're, being, we're given an adoption, we're given a family, we're given an inheritance, and we're being sanctified. We're not just forgiven of our sins, we're being made more and more and more like Jesus, all through his work. And that's that's there's that and so much more is wrapped up in in what Jesus is telling Paul there and what Paul tells to Agrippa. But then he goes on and he says, so um, blah, blah, blah. Sorry. Sorry to say blah, blah, blah with the scriptures. But verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Paul is proclaiming the gospel in the marketplaces and everywhere and all, all across the Mediterranean rim. OK, verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And I know I read that before, but um, 
it's it's a message of light and of freedom and of forgiveness and of being brought into a family and of being given an inheritance that has been prophesied in the Old Testament that converges on Christ and that Christ opens up to every man, woman, and child of every stripe, every uh, age, every social class, every race, every nationality, every skin color, um, every shape and size. Guys, this is part of the wondrous beauty of the gospel that Paul is imparting to Agrippa. It's not exclusive. It is exclusively through one way, Jesus. It's that narrow. Through Jesus alone are we saved. But in Jesus, anyone and everyone can come. Thief on the cross, super religious Jew like Paul, anyone from any, a barbarian, a sophisticated, a Greek, a Roman, a Scythian, a slave, a freedman, a man, a woman, a child, it doesn't matter. Black, white, brown, it doesn't matter. It's all on offer. It's all on offer. There are only two races, those that are enthralled to Satan and those that are enthralled to God, those that are of the first birth in Adam. We're born in sin. We're born rebels. We're born dead on arrival. And those that are born of God through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. Um, those that are in darkness, those that are in light. Those are the first Adam. Those are the second. I might have already said that. But this is what Paul is putting before Agrippa. And then again, he just enjoins him. Uh, Agrippa, please. He can't help himself. And everywhere Paul goes, he doesn't just lay out his case. Hey, this is why I'm not guilty. He doesn't just lay out the gospel. He lays out the gospel with the purpose of winning converts, of winning people to the truth, to Jesus Christ himself. And that, that is what my prayer is that we would, that we would do as well, that the nations among us might know. And we would not keep that message from any type of person, but share it with everyone and that we would proclaim it, and that we would articulate it, and that we would live it. Um, let me just read this. To steal from John Stott, Paul isn't just apologetic. In other words, in the old sense of the word, in the strict sense of the word, he's not just making a case for the truth of the gospel, of Christ fulfilling the scriptures and being the way to salvation. He's not just apologetic. He's not just making a case. He's evangelistic, right? Whether in the marketplace, one-on-one, on the rack, chained to a prison wall before paupers, centurions, or kings, or people like Agrippa, Paul is always driving at sharing the good news of Jesus that his listeners might be saved. And that's my prayer for us, that we would be like that as well. Because, again, for him, the resurrection is the only thing that makes sense. It makes sense of everything. It makes sense of everything. It makes everything binary. We're either going to live forever uh, at and go the way of Christ Jesus with Christ inside of us, or we are going to die forever. The stakes are infinite and eternal. Uh, let me let me leave you with John Stott's words. Thank God for Paul's courage. Kings and queens, governors and generals did not daunt him. Jesus had warned his disciples that they would be brought before kings and governors on account of his name. And had promised that on such occasions he would give them words and wisdom. Um, that's, that's where, well, no, he continues. Jesus had also told Ananias... Uh, who presumably passed the information on that Paul was his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. These predictions had come true, and Paul had not failed. God bless you.